Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pay why? Hey, Cam. You were telling me just off air then, you watched a movie last night. Yeah. You watched The Last King of Scotland. I did. I saved any thoughts for the pod. What do you think? I really enjoyed the film. A great performance from James McAvoy and also appreciated the, the girl who plays Sarah, also played Margaret Thatcher in The Crown. And That, that, is, that is some good trivia. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. As far as she's in a couple other shows as well, like Sex Education. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't seen that yeah. one. Yeah, good film. I had I had no idea about like anything that had really happened in Uganda. It just seemed like a real a real wild time, and some real like horrible stuff going on as well. Yeah, the movie was kind of weird, where you had a bit of a rapport with the with the the colonel or the president, president I'm in, and then. In the same way, like he becomes a, a villain at the end, a kind of the same way that the the Doctor Carrigan character experiences him as well. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Nick Nicholas Garrigan, mm. he is a fictional character. Not so, real. Not real. Ah. So okay, he's yeah. supposed to be the lens in which you see Uganda okay. from kind of Britain's point of view as you watch yeah. so, watch this guy that you're largely supportive with initially okay. turn and become the enemy of your country. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because I was like, that was that's just a crazy story. Yeah, so I'm like, I didn't really. I wanted to wait to the podcast to to see if it was what was true and what was not. But yeah, wow. So we are going to talk about Idiom in today, and we will reference that movie a fair amount of time. If you haven't seen it, would highly recommend. As a history teacher, I don't really expect too much from a historical movie to be accurate. It's a movie; it's supposed mm. to be fun and creative. And I don't hold lack of historical accuracy ever against a movie. Yeah. So whatever, like you, like you said, it's a lens. It is exactly. Yeah. And if Idiom was making a movie, he'd make it very differently. Mm. And we're going to try and think through what was Idiomin's actual point of view. Is there any merit in support of Idiomin? Because there's a lot of Africans out there that still really love Idiomin. The West is really? re- yeah, mm. West heavenly condemns Idiomin. There's a lot of Africans who really love the guy. So we're going to look at Idiomin today. We are missing Ben. It's a shame. 
to not have him. I'm a bit worried about how we'll go without him, but yeah, I just hope Ben's okay. Really, <laughs> he's he's on sabbatical. Our, our toxic fans really drove him away. We had a poll: where would Ben rank? Oh, well, how far do you reckon Ben got in the primary school captain race? Forty-five percent voted that he didn't get a single post. Didn't yeah, that, crack the top five. That would be tough to take. Uh-huh. Um, I'm hoping this time away for Ben can, yeah, really get his creative juices flowing and he can come back, come back stronger. We um history fans, they're not very, they're very, perhaps the best subscribers to have because political. If you have a purely political channel, you pretty much have boxed yourself into what you can and can't say. Mm. So you get subscribers who endorse a particular point of view. I would say for mine. Perhaps the most contra. If I, if I were to lose my subscribers one way, it would be me yeah. saying Israel's not that bad. I reckon <laughs> I said something like that. I just oh. said it now. We are looking at Israel a fair amount today as well. Cool. So yeah, but because history does deal with the political realm a little bit, you guys mm. can be a little bit toxic, and you pushed Ben over the edge. Um, no, he's Ben is overseas in America, and he's coming back soon. So it's just PY night today, and we're going to think about idiom men. Where we need to start when we look at Idi Amin is we do need to begin with the history of Africa. Taking it, you didn't do much African history at school. No, close to zero. Yeah, you'd look a little bit maybe at um, how the slave trade, I'd say. Mm. But And you kind of know a bit about it from... Uh, there's a lot of movies as well around. But, yeah, nothing specific. I think, like, all I learned was, like, a little bit about apartheid... And it was okay. the idea that Nelson Mandela was the South African Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. But that's not even true. Like, there's that Office UK joke where... Nelson's column. <laughs> <laughs> and David Rent's like, Nelson, who was arrested for being black? And then the guy's got to be like, no, he was actually... It was He was arrested for sabotage. The African National Congress had a targeted campaign at, like, derailing South African trains for political purposes. So I think a lot of our African history... Yeah is also, like, I hate the word, but I think in this case it's true, is largely whitewashed. So we are going to look at Idi Amin today. There's that's, the West... That's in the in-betweeners as well. They is, make a... Neil makes, like, a... Or someone makes a Nelson Mandela joke. And he's like, what would happen if Nelson Mandela didn't stand up for his rights? <laughs> and then Neil goes, wouldn't have Nelson's column for oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do remember that one. And so, yeah, like, literally, like, we're pretty, we're pretty illiterate in African history. And so we are going to look today at... The story of Idi Amin, and we're going to try and look at both the West narrative and also Africa's narrative too. So going back, you did say that the bit that you did know was about the slave trade, and it is probably important to start there. So Africa's a little bit different to America and Australia in terms of its colonization. So when it came to Australia and the Americas, from Europe's point of view, it was a continent that was, that was discovered. Now, obviously it wasn't yeah. because there were people there, but from their point of view, it was. Mm. Africa, they've known about its existence since the beginning of European society. It's referenced in the Bible. The Roman Empire spread to North Africa. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, huge saint in Christianity, is from modern-day Algeria. But it was in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century that European influence started spreading further central and then further south and also further west. And so in those centuries, we kind of see the French take West Africa, hence why the football team is so OP right now. (laughs) We see the uh, the Portuguese go south. We see the Dutch go south. We see the British go south and central. We see Belgium actually go a little bit central. In the Congo. Yeah, actually, we did cover that. Oh, really? Yeah, Belgians in the Congo. King Leopold? Yeah, it just come back to me now. Yeah. Mm. That's, 
That's right. That so, was pretty like intense. Yeah, we should. We, we, we're going to do a King Leopold one. Yeah, okay. It's a phenomenal story. Well, in the worst possible way, a phenomenal story. But that's right. So basically, the, Germany is the missing player here. And one of the reasons we speculate, why is Germany so aggro at the beginning of the 20th century? Well, while all these other European nations were kind of carving up Africa for economic and political gain, Germany couldn't get itself together and was kind of fractured into different empires like the Kingdom of Prussia. When they finally get their act together, by the end of the 1800s, Africa's been entirely carved up by the Western European powers. So two main resources that came from Africa. Number one was just resources. So it's abundant agricultural land, particularly in the center, and it provides a lot of minerals. And so the and resources for like rubber that were used in the Industrial Revolution. So that's the number one function of Africa. There's another important resource that Africa has, and as you referenced before, that was slaves. Now, we have this idea that when Britain rocked up in Africa, they just kind of captured slaves, chucked them on a boat, shipped them off to America. Mm. That's not really what happened. They actually made deals with local tribal warlords and local tribal chiefs and kings and more or less had a deal that said, we'll give you industrial machinery and mechanized weapons in return for you giving us over these people that are lo- okay. your enemies. Like, we'll help you win battles against your tribal enemies oh. and then we'll take them as slaves. So it's a win-win for both of us here and we'll give you all these weapons in return. That's really important because it is important to remember that a lot of the tribes had a history with Britain that wasn't simply them just being conquered. There was actually a fair amount of cooperation between the two. In Uganda, there's... So Uganda is under the control of Britain, up yep. until World War Two and until after World War Two, yep. the primary tribe in Uganda is called Boganda, and Boganda is run by a guy called the Kabaka. That's kind of the king of Uganda. Yep. And so there's the history of Britain and Boganda actually being actually having a semblance of cooperation. Now, basically, throughout the 1950s, it's the era of decolonization. So there's the crown episode where the queen dances with the uh, president of Ghana. I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the episode. What country was that? Ghana. Ghana, okay. So that was the episode basically to kind of summarize what was happening throughout the entire 50s and early 60s. And we actually see it in India as well. And so decolonization is happening. African countries are becoming independent. And so Uganda is looking at this thinking our time's coming soon. From Britain's point of view, they've got to find a way to actually withdraw from Africa, but keep all their interests that they still have. A lot of British companies have set up shop in Africa, taken their minerals, rich agricultural ground, and these companies want to make sure they still have access to use the land of Uganda without any interference from the government. And so what happens is as Britain withdraws, there's a bit of a deal that they strike with Uganda. You can have independence. Your head of state is going to be the Kabaka, so the head of Buganda. And you can have a prime minister who you elect yourself and who you appoint yourself. And so basically that was the deal, that the Kabak is the head of state, figurehead title, ceremonial, but you don't really mess with the system. Like Britain still has has a lot of sway and we kind of keep the status quo as is. And you guys can appoint your own prime minister. The prime minister of Uganda is a guy called Milton Obote. Yeah. It means not in the story yet. So this is Milton Obote. He gets referenced at the start of Last King of Scotland. Yeah. Like, I mean, comes in, he's like, Abote's gone, and kind of goes from there. Abote is anti-British. And so what Abote does mm. is he tries to get, well, he successfully gets rid of the Kabaka. This is where Idi Amin okay. enters the story. This yeah. is the first 
bit we see of Idi Amin having a lot of control in Uganda. So, a little bit of a background on Idi Amin. He is in the British Army. And so, basically, that was like a British-controlled Ugandan army. He claimed to have fought in Burma in World War II. Probably didn't. So, yeah, he kind of often spoke about his background in the British Army. What he was definitely involved in was the suppression of a group called the Mau Mau Rebels in Kenya. And Idi Amin showed the British Army basically a lot of competence in brutally putting down the Kenyan rebellion. And Britain looked at him and they're like, "That this is our guy. They kind of turned a blind eye to the brutality that, that he used in putting them down and yeah. were just stoked that this is a guy who will happily take the game to the enemy. Okay. No. So a bote is like pretty anti-British. Yeah. And they see Amin as someone who can kind of be on their team because he's in the army. Exactly. And so Abote promotes Idi Amin to be the like chief general in Uganda. Mm-hmm. So this is coming back full circle now. 66, we're going back to the Kabaka here. Yeah. How does Abote get rid of the Kabaka? Well, he sends Idi Amin to do his dirty work. And so basically Idi Amin uses a full-scale military intervention and forces the Kabaka to actually flee to Britain. So this is where Britain starts getting pretty annoyed at Milton Abote. Like, hey, you're breaking the deal that we had here and now the Kabaka is taking refuge in our country because through Idi Amin, you forced him out to us. I thought the Kabaka was a, like, a Ugandan thing, though, but they didn't want, they didn't want one. So, yeah, so so the Kabaka, right, he's, he's the king of okay. the of Buganda, the, the biggest Buganda. tribe in Uganda. Yeah. And he's kind of seen as a remnant of Britain's imperial control by a lot of Ugandans. Oh, he so was, it's not like a... A cultural kind of thing in Uganda. It was supposed to be. And the Kabaka... So the Kabaka... There's still a Kabaka around today because Idi Amin's regime eventually fell. But that Kabaka... I can't remember his name. He was exiled to London and he basically lived there till he died. Now, again, like we said before, the Kabaka was the king of the Buganda. But when the British left Uganda, the deal was we pick the king... Well, we picked the president, so the Kabaka. You get your own prime minister, which is a bote. Mm-hmm. A bote is like, we're going to get rid of the one that you picked, which is the Kabaka. So through Idi Amin, a bote gets rid of the Kabaka, and the Kabaka's gone to England. So now a bote has much more power. He does a few other things that annoy Britain. What a lot of history podcasts and history channels will say is that Britain was annoyed at Milton Abote because he was a communist. I'm going to make the argument that ideology had nothing to do with it. It's Cold War era. The Cold War, by the 60s and then the early 70s, that's more America's fight than Britain's fight. Like, obviously, Churchill talked about the Iron Curtain falling on Eastern Europe. Mm. But by the 70s, Britain doesn't get involved in the Vietnam War. They kind of let that one pass. And they're actually pulling out of Asia. Like, under Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister from the Crown in the Abernathy episode, they pull out of, of Asia. So I'm, I'm not convinced that Britain really cared what ideology the Ugandan leader was. What I think Britain was really interested in is control of the resources. Because what Abote starts doing is he starts nationalizing the resources. Nationalizing is basically when the government comes in and, and is in charge of the company. So they either they buy out a share in the company or they forcibly take it over. And so Abote wanted to buy out all these British companies and have Uganda or the Ugandan government own these companies that were taking Ugandan minerals and using Ugandan agriculture. It's like, it's our land. We're going to, we're going to control it. 
not British companies that will take our resources, sell them for a profit, and then that money goes out of our country. Similar thing to what Rex Connor was trying to do in the Gough Whitlam episode by yeah. wanting to take over the mines. For me, that's the thing that really annoys Britain, and we start to see the beginning of a coup. I wish to take this opportunity to announce that my government will allow full political activity by everybody. So, 1969, Britain gets the inkling that Amin's starting to go a little bit rogue on Milton Abote. And they get in the sense that this guy is actually turning on the, the Prime Minister, now President of Uganda. A mm-hmm. Re- couple of reasons why. Number one, in 1969, Idi Amin supported rebels in South Sudan. Now, that might sound all well and just a regular business. Abote had nothing to do with it. Abote didn't green light it, didn't approve it or anything. Yeah. Idi Amin just did this completely independently. Yeah. 969 is an assassination attempt on Abote's life. Some links to Idi Amin. What Abote does is Abote cracks down hard and he tortures a lot of people trying to figure out who did it. Mm. And that puts a lot of Ugandans offside. Yeah. And so a lot of the Ugandan people are now starting to turn against Milton Abote. It's kind of like who can blink first, who can shoot first. By 1970, either Idi Amin or Milton Abote will be the leader of Uganda in five years' time. And basically, it's a contest between who can oust the other one first. So what Abote does is he prepares another guy to replace Idi Amin as the chief general in Uganda. He can't fire Idi Amin because if Idi Amin has direct access to the soldiers, Idi Amin's just going to try the coup right then and there. So he's got to find a way to quietly get rid of Idi Amin and try and reduce his power. Interestingly, one of the things that Abote tried, because Idi Amin, he basically had the education of a fourth grader. Uh, in in Uganda, because in, in it wouldn't a, go well on. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? No, <laughs> <laughs> or nut plan, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. Because obviously in Uganda, if you want to create a financially sustainable environment for your family, you have to leave school early to work a job. It's also worth noting that Idi Amin was from the Muslim part of Uganda, so Uganda is kind oh. of a gateway between North Africa and Central Africa. So in North Africa, we've got primarily Muslim countries. In Central Africa, we've got heavily Christian countries. And so Uganda's got both. It's got Muslims in the north and then primarily Christians in the, in the Buganda. So as you move further south. Idi Amin is illiterate, doesn't do well. So what Milton Abote does is he puts him on the equivalent of Q&A Uganda. <laughs> and he's like, everyone's just going to laugh at this guy. Yeah. And Abote was like, you've got to do this and you've got to do this in English, knowing that his literacy in English was at, at, the, at the level of a fourth grader. The theory is he's going to make an idiot of himself and will completely discredit himself in public. Idi hmm. Amin really struggled on the interview and he, he didn't do well. He looked like a bit of a goose and Abote is trying to use that to get him out. The movie portrays him as quite a good speaker. Yes. So he's charismatic yeah. and can... He, his, his English definitely got better as he's dealing with yeah, policy. Yeah, language, yeah. Yeah, throughout the 70s. But he, at the, in the early years, yeah, he really struggled. Mm. And it actually, it took a little bit until he could work the cameras. And when he figured out, he worked them really well. And he's a charismatic dude, mm. but he's not literate. And so when they're asking him to spell out specific policies, that's where he struggles. Mm. If you're just like Bob Hawke at the cricket and you're just mingling with the public and you get a little bit of camera time, you can get show a lot of charisma that. quite easily. Yeah. And you need to spell out specifics in... English, that's where he really struggles. Fast forward to 71. It's clear one is going to out the other, or oust the other, I should say, very soon. 
Milton Obote, one of the biggest mistakes that he makes, he's a very good political operator and he's not done yet. He's going to come back. He's a very good political operator, but he leaves the country. And so basically Obote goes to Singapore and Idi Amin uses that as the time to strike. And the army take control of Entebbe Airport. That's the airport that we're going to come back to that airport Mm. later in the episode. They take control of the airport and Idi Amin declares himself to be the new leader of Uganda. Milton Obote... Sorry? So did a bote? Was he just on holiday, or no? He was me. He was on on conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on on business. <laughs> and so he was. The news came to a bote when he was flying back, and so he actually had to redirect his flight to Kenya. It was a little bit of African geography, just so that you know. Uganda is landlocked by Kenya, so Kenya's got the coast, and Uganda is to the west. And you've got Tanzania to the south. That's important to know the geography because those two countries will play a really important role. So Obote flees and bides his time. He's trying to make a comeback, but he knows that Idi Amin is not going to... If he comes back, he's dead. And Idi Amin is the leader of Uganda. Amin's basically like, we're going to have elections in the next 18 months. And so I'm going to be in charge of Africa... Sorry, I'm going to be in charge of Uganda until we get to those elections. Are Britain playing any role at this stage? Great question. They know about the coup. They legally have an obligation by international law to alert Milton Obote to what's going on. They do nothing. Yeah. Hands in pockets. Yes, because they want they want him in. in. Yeah. They're like, this is our guy. He's come through the British Army, and Obote. He's gonna like Amin will let us have access to the resources again. This will be great for British business and great for political influence as well. So Idi Amin, he actually starts his presidency on very good terms with Britain. Britain is one. The other country that he's on very good terms with is Israel. Now, I'm going to try to explain Israel-Palestine just in layman's terms for about 30 seconds. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this could be the end of us, PY, five yeah. episodes in. This could be the last time we're recording. Long story short, there's a Zionist movement in the early 20th century. Basically, can we create a country for Jewish people? Reason why is Jews have had historic persecution particularly that then gets really intensified with Nazi Germany during World War II. Mm-hmm. So at the back end of World War II, what happens is like, okay, we're going to, the United Nations agreed to create a new independent country uh, for Jewish people. Israel, where are we going to put Israel? Well, we're going to put them in the homeland, biblically speaking. And so they put them in Palestine. Okay. If you're going to just put a country in somewhere, that's going to force people out of their home. Yeah. So Palestine obviously didn't like this very much. Like, hey, no, this is our country. And so the Arab states supported Palestine and the West supported Israel. And throughout the 50s, 60s, and then even into the early 70s, Israel made territorial gains and actually expanded their territory and swallowed up other parts of Arabia. And that was the UN that just like, oh, okay, like Palestine, unlucky. Israel's going here now. Do we want to keep (laughs) recording? (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so UN UN was 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 largely supportive of Israel because the UN was really like yes the Soviet Union was part of the UN but it was a US-led initiative and so the US supported Israel and in return Israel could basically expand its territory across Arabia I look forward to exploring this more in the future (laughs) (laughs) well you're speaking with such certainty as though we're going to get there PY (laughs) so basically when Idi Amin took over, Idi Amin was pro-Israel. The reason why was that Israel had actually trained up the Ugandan forces that Idi Amin was in control of. 
So Idi Amin, he was very pro-British, he was very pro-Israel, and so he started off looking like the dream candidate for the West to have in Uganda. This is a guy that's on our side. He's back in the horses the way back. That changes. So Idi Amin, what he does is he goes to Israel and he goes to Britain requesting it for more advanced weaponry. Britain and Israel say, we'll give it to you, but you got to pay. We're not just going to give you a freebie here. You don't need this as aid. That seems to be the catalyst that causes Idi Amin to change. Remember, I said Idi Amin was from the Muslim part of Uganda. Yep. And so this is where Idi Amin starts really embracing his Islamic roots. Now, is he a Muslim? Well, it's not for me to say, but the fruit falling from the tree doesn't really seem like devout Islam. Multiple mm-hmm. extramarital affairs, consume a lot of alcohol, that sort of stuff. So he seems to politically re-embrace his Islamic roots and then starts throwing his weight behind Palestine. And he flips overnight. Yeah. The other thing that was pretty well, interesting... Because because they w- Britain and Israel wouldn't give him weapons for free. Yes. And he's thinking, well, I can get a better deal if I make friends with the Arab world. And so basically another thing that's interesting, Idi Amin, he rocked up to Buckingham Palace without giving forewarning. Mm-hmm. So he just rocked up. He's like, yeah, I'm here. Um, here to see my visit with the Queen. And so the Queen's like, what do I do? She obviously gets in contact with the government. The government's like, oh, well, he's our guy. Let's just like, there's no harm done in hearing him out and keeping him on side. And so, yeah, Queen Elizabeth actually had a surprise visit from Idi Amin in his, in his early days. And so, like I said before, Idi Amin, he starts off on a really pro-British note. But that starts to change. It's like quite a, uh, I, I can't think of the word, just a... Unpredictable. Unpredictable is the word. Yeah, exactly. And that's, <laughs> now... It is worth noting as well, this is where it gets into really debatable territory. Idi Amin, he was, had, a, had low literacy and the condescending view of the British were that Africans were less civilised people. And so they viewed Idi Amin as acting as a typical African. That was kind of the racist snobbery that was around at the time. Idi Amin, what he wanted to do is he wanted to play into that to basically try and outmanoeuvre Britain. As far as you understand it, he wanted Britain to think that he was much dumber than what he was so that he could basically have them really underestimate him at the negotiating table. It's kind of a similar thing with Trump. I'm not defending Trump in any way, but it's for me, it's quite obvious that Trump plays into stupidity. He is nowhere near as stupid as what MSNBC makes him out to be. He does things like he clearly and very intentionally mispronounces words so that it gets clicks on the media. And so he'll say like, I don't know, something like uh, non-information rather than misinformation. That gets played heaps on the media, and then all of a sudden he's getting heaps of coverage on what he's saying. And for me, it's pretty obvious that Trump plays into being the idiot much more than I think he actually is. He's reading Amin's books. Well, that's a, <laughs> straight out of straight out of Uganda. Now, over time, what Idi Amin plays into and what he actually is, the lines become a little bit more blurred, and it gets tougher to delineate what is actually him putting on a performance versus what does he actually think. But if you drink very little, you feel very happy, very proud, and you talk to your people, that will be... I'm just advising you. <laughs> Idi Amin basically starts creating a new web of alliances, and he pretty much just joins the other side. So he makes an alliance with Ben's behind the new star, Colonel Gaddafi. So Gaddafi's in Libya, obviously part of the Arab world, supporter of Palestine. So he makes an alliance with Libya. Libya gives him $25 million of military aid. He then also starts to make an alliance with the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union, they didn't do heaps and heaps in Africa. The reason why the Soviet Union actually supported Idi Amin is that they were in a new Cold War. I'm not talking about America. They were in a Cold War with China. 
in the seventies, two communist countries that had a huge falling out in the 1960s and their neighboring countries that share, share a border and China's gone and sided with America. And so the Soviet Union actually starts putting a lot of support into Africa because that's where a lot of Mao's foreign policy energy goes into. And Mao, Mao Zedong, put heaps of time into Africa. And so the Soviet Union actually supports Idi Amin as a way to counter China. So like in, like in Forrest Gump when they go over and play ping pong? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Ping pong, yeah. Ping pong diplomacy. It was, mm. yeah. So that happens right after America opens up with China. Yeah. Good pickup. Good reference there. Thanks. So yeah, basically the Soviet Union and Libya have come to Idi Amin's aid, and now Idi Amin is being propped up by them. And he's completely flip sides. He went from being a Western hero to a Western enemy. And so when we think about the coverage of Idi Amin, it is important to note that there's more going on than just the human rights stuff. Yes, the human rights stuff. We're going to cover that and. We'll let that speak for itself. But why does he get such emphasis? He's, he's a really well-known African dictator. Why is he way more known than nearly any other dictator in Africa? Well, it's some of the stuff that he did, and we're going to see some, some pretty horrific stuff, but it's also the fact that he's an African leader who has sided with the enemies of the West. And for me, that's why he gets a lot of coverage. And that's... You, you, you go on Idi Amin's... Like, I looked up just YouTube shorts, Idi Amin, read the comments... It's a lot of African people saying that he gets a bad rap because he picked the other side of the Cold War and okay. he picked the side of their enemies. I think there's still holes in that. You can be hated by the West and also commit huge human rights violations at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive, but yeah. So he kind of flips alliances in the early days of his leadership. The other thing that he does that's really important is he expels the Asians. Was that in the movie? Yeah, it was in the movie. Yeah. Seems like a bold, bold move. Yeah. <laughs> now, it is important to note when Idi is referring to Asians, he's talking specifically about people from Pakistan, India, and Israel because they're links to Israel and then Britain. People from the subcontinent that were part of the British Empire migrated to Uganda, and then the, a lot of Israelis came to Africa. It was actually Israel who built Entebbe, Entebbe Airport in Uganda. So, basically, it's important to note this. The ruling class in Uganda was the Brits. So the white man was the ruling class in Uganda. The middle class were the Asians. Again, this broad group, like Israel is, I guess, technically Asia, but yeah. you, not, you, you don't think of it as like the Far East or anything like that. They're in the UEFA well, confederation. Do you know why? Uh, no, I don't. Safety reasons. Yeah. It, you cannot have an Israel-Palestine okay. football match. Yeah. So, yeah, they... And, and we're actually sport... Is Israeli sport. That's not going to be the last time we're going to mention Israeli sport in the conversation yeah. of Idi Amin. Yeah, because we know um, Maccabi Tel Aviv have had some good runs in the Champions League. Yes, and- <laughs> yes. And so there's that, There's a little bit behind the story there, which is helpful for understanding Idi Amin. So basically the Asians are the middle class. They own 90% of the businesses in Uganda and it's mainly retail. So you've got the, the people who own the huge corporations in Uganda are British. The people who own the local businesses that have a fair bit of disposable income are Asians. And then you have the black Ugandans who are the underclass. And so Idi Amin wasn't the first one to pick up on this. Milton Obote actually toyed with the idea of expelling the Asians. The kind of rhetoric behind it all, it's pretty identical to Nazi Germany. Make a scapegoat, blame them for all the issues, and basically propose that the country will be a kind of safe haven and a private... You just knocked over the mic then. 
a thriving economy if you get rid of that particular group of people. So Idi Amin, he expels the Asians and basically the issue that, that comes with it. And it's just pretty, the only thing how scary this was for, like there's a lot, there's a huge community in Leicester in England of Asians who were expelled by Idi Amin. Wow. So they went all over the Commonwealth and even to non-Commonwealth countries. So a lot went to India, a fair few went to Pakistan, a fair few went to Canada, most went to Britain, some Australia, some even went to Fiji. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's pretty intense. When and you say expel, it's like leave or die. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, probably leave or imprisonment. Yeah. And he's basically like, you've got to sell your business. So sell what you've got. More likely, like more realistically, like we're going to seize what you've got mm. and we're going to give your company to the black man. That was kind of the rhetoric that was going around at the time. Idi Amin, he kind of used a couple of stories to base this off. Probably untrue. So he spoke about an Asian woman who wanted to marry a Ugandan man and she wrote to her parents to kind of say as much and the parents were really disapproving of that marriage. And so he appealed to stories like that to kind of inflame the tensions between black Ugandans and, yeah. and Asians. Yeah. So yeah, 60,000 60, Asians left. And so pretty, pretty for Some a country more. that I think it's, po- I could be mistaken here. I think it's population at the time was around about 9 million. So 60,000, that's a pretty significant portion of the population. Yeah. That's going to create issues because you've got basically the business or the, the business class of and the middle class of Uganda have now gone. You can't just replace that's that's a lot of capital that's kind of left the country. Yes, the stores are still there. There's no expertise in how to run the stores. Doesn't seem doesn't seem economically responsible. No, and that's where the Ugandan economy is going to run into some real issues. It is important to note we addressed this before. As this is going on, obviously Eyebrows are starting to raise in Britain and in the West. And there's some, <laughs> only now. Once yeah, the- you <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, Initially, he's it- telling 60,000 people to leave his country, maybe he's <laughs> not all there. Yeah. And because within the government, obviously, the alliance with Gaddafi and with the Soviet Union was the, was the first thing. Yeah. But for the public, now that st- news is starting to kind of spread there. Yeah. And so the public's starting to become aware. It is important to note as pressure is falling on Idi Amin. He works the media really well and he's like Last King of Scotland shows, he's very charismatic in front of the camera and he's laughing and smiling and he gets the, the even British reporters that have a huge admiration for Idi Amin because of how warm he was in the room and how he laughed and joked and gave them time and he worked the cameras and he worked, worked the room really well. So he's still keeping the fort together. Uganda has not turned off Idi Amin at this point. He's a hero. He is expelled the class that's yeah. pers- the, the, the reason for all their troubles, and he's starting to stand up to Britain now, and he's really good in front of the camera. Less than eight weeks are left before the deadline runs out. Eight weeks in which, according to General Amin, 65,000 Asians must leave Uganda. So, Idi Amin, we're going to talk about his policies right now. Bit of an issue for Idi Amin in terms of policy, because policy requires specificity. It also requires writing. We live in a society like pretty much, again, what was one of the key markers of civilized society is having laws that can be mass distributed and given to people in written form. Idiom in. He didn't do very well and I smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> and so how is he actually going to enact his policies? Well, what he does is he kind of rules by edict and he calls up civil servants and he kind of goes on long diatribes and they need to convert that into specific policy if that makes sense. So it's be, it'd be hard enough to convert 
a policy of a coherent man just go, talking to you, let alone someone who's coming probably under the influence of alcohol, basically giving giving a lot of instructions yeah. that he wants to be... be a comp- slow process. Yes. <laughs> so when it comes to talking about his policies, we can't look to heaps of laws that are clearly spelt out, but we can look towards trends and see what kind of what happened as a result. Like I said, Idi Amin re-embraced his Islamic roots when he flipped on Israel and started to make alliances with Muammar Gaddafi and with the Arab world. So what he did was he started building heaps of mosques and this kept the northern Ugandans happy. He also put a lot of northern Ugandans who were Islamic into key positions of government, kind of jobs for the boys, and this kept the north really happy. He went pretty hard against the Catholic South. So he started to imprison a lot of key Catholics. He actually just, he started to imprison a lot of people. We'll come to that in a second. And one of the things that will be instrumental in his downfall is he gets rid of a key archbishop. And so he kind of cracks down on Catholicism while also promoting Islam. And it seemed like he's trying to, to reinvent the country. When he was under the British control, when he was in the British army and coming through the ranks, he didn't really talk about his Islam that much. And he didn't really practice it, to be honest. But he seems to really re-embrace it, at least in the public, and kind of tries to move Uganda in the direction of an Islamic country. And again, this is because all... Because of the ties to Gaddafi? It seems yeah. like it. I can't think... It, like, like maybe he had a genuine conversion, but I think the chances are very little. Yeah. So the much more likely explanation is he wants to make friends with the Arab world. And so part of that is re-embracing the ideology that they follow. So... Like I said before, the Asians were the middle class. And in a rural country like Uganda, one of the better displays of wealth is owning a farm. And so a lot of those farms were supposed to be given to the Ugandan public. Idi Amin ended up giving them to the army. There's a lot, like I said, jobs for the boys, homes for the boys. There's a lot of preferential treatment for the army. And from Idi Amin's point of view, again, like it's coup central. Like it's, he needs to make sure he's got the support of the ruling class. He's also a military background. He has got no policy training at all. He has had no background, no experience in handling handling economic matters or making alliances or anything like that. His background is military. And so he basically gives really favourable conditions to yeah. those that are in the if army. they're going to protect him, like... Exactly. Just look after them. Yeah, precisely. And so the issue is it's the military who runs the economy. If you want your economy run well, you want someone like Kevin Rudd. Like, so seriously, like someone yeah. who's a, a nerd who has studied extensively the impacts of different policies. You don't want someone who has no idea and their background is in force because what will happen is there'll be increased military spending and in terms of just managing the day-to-day side of things, helping small businesses, making sure they're kind of in good trade deals that aren't putting heaps of their workforce out of labor and all that sort of stuff, you need to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about. The military doesn't. And so we actually see the like things we see things like cement factories just completely collapse from from lack of from lack of maintenance. So again, these are government run factories that haven't been updated or maintained that just kind of collapse down through to wear and tear and dilapidation. It's so, ironic. Factories. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of that, yeah. <laughs> I was like, are the factories made of cement or like they're actually producing cement? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, manufacturing cement. <laughs> We see the sugar industry completely collapse because, again, all these farms are given to the military who don't maintain or care for them. And so we actually see so sugar, one of Uganda's main exports, that completely collapses. 
And so basically, right, we actually start to see a black market really begin because the economic conditions are so bad that I need to try and smuggle out goods from our country and sell it on the black market where I can get more money and where people have more purchasing power. One of the big illegal trades that begins under Idi Amin is the coffee trade. So Idi Amin, basically, there's heaps of coffee that's leaving the country where people are trying to sell it to other countries for greater money. That in itself isn't economically all that bad. If you're a country, you want other countries' money. Like That's not... And if it's going to go into circulation, that's great. Obviously, if it's if it's a black market, then you can't tax it. And basically, it's a lot of influence that's going to other countries as well. So Idi Amin works really hard and is really intent and is, it's an issue he's really fastidious about on stopping the coffee trade. So basically that in terms of what can we look at in, in policy, those are sort of the main ones we look at. Like I said before, it's more of a rule by edict rather than a spell it out. Parliament's pretty much a rubber stamp and not very functional. And so idiom in it's, it's, it's a rule by a bit of chaos. Was there any outlandish sort of policies that came from this process? Less so policies, more so actions. So the generally accepted estimate is that Idi Amin killed killed 400,000 people. That's the number you hear thrown around a lot. So it's the African Holocaust, 400,000 people arbitrarily died under Idi Amin. Some go as low as 100,000, some go as high as 500,000. I'm not qualified to actually point towards the direction of which number's right. A lot of people did die almost randomly. The Nazi Holocaust was orchestrated and it was very carefully planned out. At least, at least. They had their, like, they had a purpose to why they were. Exactly. Had a purpose behind what they were doing. When I say carefully planned out, obviously there was still heaps of chaos within it, Mm. but there was like a system. We're going to give you a number and we're going to systematically execute you. Idi Amin, he had a lot of respect for Hitler. So part of his flipping, so when he flips on Israel, he starts praising Hitler and talking about how Hitler is kind of a misunderstood figure of history who stood up against the evil Jews. Red flag. Yeah, red flag. <laughs> so that starts getting played heaps in foreign media. He gets asked about it again and he kind of deflects the second time. So he's like, let's not talk about the past. We're talking about the future here. Now, like a Kanye West. Well, yeah, he goes, he kind of has his Kanye Alex yeah. Jones moment. <laughs> I don't, know, have you, I don't know if you've listened to the full thing or not. No, I have not. It's crazy. Alex Jones is the one that's going, is, he's the one that's he's like... pulling pull him back. Hey. Yeah, Alex Jones is like, well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah. And <laughs> which is so bizarre to see. But yeah, he kind of has his Kanye moment. And again, you got to think, yeah, in the Arab world, this is pretty well received because they are really anti-Zionist because they don't want to see the strengthening of Israel at all. Mm. Where I'm going with this, sorry, to come full circle... 400,000 people died. What are the links? Well, people who spoke badly about him, boyfriends or husbands of women he wanted to sleep with. Mm. Like there's, there's loose patterns. That number wouldn't get you up to 400,000 people though. You don't encounter 400,000 people that you're like, I just want to kill. So it was more, I think the better explanation is the army having license to terrorize villages and basically abuse them. Idi Amin, yes, he's at the center of it. I don't think it's fair to say Idi Amin is pointing his finger at 400,000 different people being like, you can kill, you can be killed, you can be killed. It's the army having unfettered power under his control and Idi Amin not wanting to put his army in line because he's really reliant on them for his basis of power. So that's probably one of the more outlandish ones. The other big one that you hear people talk about is two is him feeding people to crocodiles. Oh. Is that 
Is that in the movie at all? I'm trying to think. No. Oh, maybe mentioned. Yeah. Maybe mentioned, but like not shown or anything. So like feeding them to the crocodiles, again, it's technically true, but it's there's a little bit more to it than that. He disposes bodies in the Nile. Yeah, I remember I remember it now. They're saying like he's Dr. Garrigan is talking to the the British guy and he's saying They've stopped digging graves. They're feeding them to the cro- crocodiles. Yeah, that ex- was the kind of line. Exactly. The other big one was that Idi Amin was a cannibal. Oh, he, I think I think he references that in the movie. I think he comes. He's like, they're saying I'm a cannibal. Yeah, yeah. And kind of like, like jokes it. Yeah, jokes it off. Now there's a source that's going around. I tried to dig really hard to find the actual root of it. There's a quote that's go- that goes. You can read it on the internet where Idi Amin in 1976 is alleged to have said that human flesh tastes much more salty than anything he's tried before. Mm. I cannot find any attribute, like any attribution to the source. It's a quote that's going around a lot, but I can't find someone like at a press conference in 1976. It's just, it's vague. It's going around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, we couldn't verify exactly, and like so. The, the theory is that because he grew up in northern Uganda, his mum was a witch doctor, and so like, is it one of those practices? Equally, it could be like I think for me a more likely scenario is that it's an MI six story spread to discredit him. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that what Idi Amin's doing is right or anything, but obviously Britain want him gone, and so Britain are really trying to discredit Idi Amin. I think for me, that's probably a more likely scenario. There were other African leaders, like the leader of Central, the Central African Republic, who were tried in court for cannibalism. Mm. But yeah, I, I'm not sold. And I can't, if someone can find the attribution of the source, by all means, send it through to Mr. Mitchell History Podcast at gmail.com. Mm. But I, in doing my research, I could not find anything. Just going back a bit, how into kind of Amin's reign did Britain kind of go like, oh, we've made a mistake here? Was it, what was the time period there where, like, everything was, like, happy and then, like, wait, no. <laughs> yeah, it took about 18 months. Okay. So, yeah. yeah the not honey- too long. Yeah, the honeymoon was over pretty quickly. Yeah. And so that's probably a good transition to then talk about the downfall of Idi Amin. Okay. The curfew is ending. Another night of fear is over. Dawn in Kampala. Nighttime killings have been a commonplace since Amin's regime collapsed in anarchy last April. So... The downfall of Idi Amin. There's a guy called Dennis Hills. He was a British lecturer who was living in Uganda under the regime of Idi Amin. So in Last King of Scotland, you see a lot of these kind of British aristocrats or, or, or British officials that are hanging around the centre of Kampala. Now, Dennis Hills, so he was a lecturer who wrote a book on Idi Amin and his reign in Uganda, and the book was very critical. Right before it was published... Ugandan army raided his house and found the manuscript for it. And they read it, obviously, not stoked on its portrayal of Idi Amin. Word gets back to Idi Amin. Idi Amin takes him hostage and basically sentences him to death by firing squad. Okay. For high treason. Now. How did the manuscript get out then? So his his house was, Dennis Hills' house was raided. Yeah. So manuscript gets out. I doubt Idi Amin was the one who read it. But yeah, he's. Oh, that wasn't like the only copy though, obviously. No, it was. So, yeah. So, the that the, the book was, was highly critical. And so, Dennis Hills gets captured and is sentenced to death by firing squad. And Idi Amin's kind of like, hold up. 
I don't think he ever actually had any intention of ever killing Dennis Hills initially. He goes goes to Britain. He's like, we've got Dennis Hills. Send the Queen out here to talk to me. Now, <laughs> the Queen is not a hostage negotiator. <laughs> that goes a little, little bit beyond her job description. Yeah. I like how he's kind of used the Queen against the Brits, though, as like, the, yeah, like seeing, I mean, she's not really that important and she doesn't have any ability to change anything but he's using her to kind of get his way yeah and, she, and like kind of put the uh the, the politicians in britain offside i guess though he resented britain for their control he looked up to them at the same time if that makes sense yeah. so he had a lot of respect for the queen as kind of the figurehead of this big powerful empire and so yeah 100 percent. He, he uses the queen in his vernacular he asked the queen to recognize him as the last king of scotland so that's, that's where it comes from. So, again, why is Nicholas Gallagher from, from Scotland? Because Idi Amin called himself the last king of Scotland and wanted to be recognised as such by the British. And so you see in the movie when Forrest Whitaker playing Idi Amin finds out James McAvoy's Nicholas yeah. Garrigan is, yeah. is Scottish, you just watch his reaction change. That's what they're trying to play into there. Did he have some obsession with Scotland? Yeah, William, William Wallace. So William Wallace stood up to the English. Which is what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he saw himself. So the Queen doesn't come out. Harold Wilson's the Prime Minister, the same guy as Prime Minister at the time. He sends his Foreign Secretary, James Callaghan, out. Callaghan actually goes on to become the Prime Minister of Britain. And Callaghan's the one who goes into negotiations. They come to an agreement that Dennis Hills gets released and Dennis Hills is going to offer an apology. And so Dennis Hills comes out here and he's like, hey, we, well, I'm sorry for what I wrote. I went too far. It was misguided, miscalculated, yada, yada, yada. And Idi Amin is that gets him so much, so many brownie points in Africa. He has humiliated the British here. He like again, think about the cultural background. The black guys put the middle finger up to the white guy after all its history. Yep. Idi Amin then really plays into this. So there's a pretty iconic photo of Idi Amin being lifted in the air by four white men. So he's kind of on a chair, and again, he's big unit. I think he's like what is he six three. He was he was the he was the light heavyweight boxing champion of Uganda. Oh wow! Yeah, he was an athlete. Yeah, if Uganda had a rugby team, it'd be be pretty dominant. Mm. And so this big unit's being lifted by four white men onto like a throne and being paraded around. And he obviously wanted that to be photographed. And this is one of the reasons why Africans love him. Not when I say Africans, I'm not saying all. I'm not speaking. They're not a monolith. Of course, yeah. But a lot of Africans love him. Given the history of colonization, he is seen as the hero who stood it's up. Kind of fighting back in a way. Yeah, and their argument is he. The reason why he was gone was not an internal rebellion. It was basically too hot to handle. And yeah, and if you were to look sort of relatively, like what what he's done, uh, you, I mean, you can't judge worse. But like, it's no worse than what like the British perhaps did in Africa, and I guess the West. Yeah, it's like it's got less of a civilized tone about it. So what, when the British did it, it was like very much like systematic and ordered. The it's ca- a lot different. When yeah, I think well, about it now. No, yeah. but the, the, the chaos behind it gives the perception of it being much more outlandish. Mm. And again, when you, people are like, well, idiom in fed people to the crocodiles, well, get disposed bodies in the Nile. Mm. Like, how different is that to disposing of the body of of, of slaves in cotton farms in in Southern America? Mm. Maybe a little bit, but the margins aren't as big as we probably want to make it out to be. Yeah. So the climax of The Last King of Scotland, it all takes place in Entebbe Airport. So that, that airport we spoke about at the start, 
basically what happened, there was a, a flight that was leaving from Tel Aviv in Israel. It was hijacked by, by Palestinian extremists. So the flight was en route to Paris. They needed somewhere safe for them to land while they kind of negotiated. And so they decided to kind of like basically like look around and Idi Amin let them land in Uganda. And was this like pre-planned or it was like they're up in the air, we need somewhere to go? <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't, I don't, I could be, I could be wrong here. I don't think, I think I don't think it was premeditated. Yeah. So I think Idi Amin, when he heard about it, like let them come. Okay. So the Palestinians arrive in Entebbe Airport. At the same time, you're looking at Nicholas Garrigan. Sorry, I just say his name normally for now. <laughs> Nicholas, <laughs> Nicholas Garrigan, member fictional character. So the whole stuff about him seeing Kay's body, which is true, Kay was was killed by Idi Amin. Oh. Uh, yeah, like in, 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 in that, that fashion. Way? Yeah, in oh, that fashion. But no. she's not she's not at the airport. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bit of like trying to condense the story there. So the the hijackers land in Entebbe Airport and they're kind of based there. Remember, who were the ones who built the airport? I forget, Cam. It was the Israelis. The Israelis, of course. So it's a it's a flight from Israel that's been hijacked by the enemy Palestine. So they come up with a plan called Operation Thunderbolt. There's a movie I haven't seen it. There was a movie that came out in 2018. My housemate said it was a really good movie, but I haven't I haven't seen it. So basically, they launch Operation Thunderbolt because they've got the blueprint to the the airport still, so they can actually know where to land, how like the the layout of the airport and so forth because they've got the blueprint. So uh, an Israeli squadron kind of dispatches to go to Uganda and by force take the hostages out of Entebbe airport. One of them is a guy called Jonathan Netanyahu. That name might mean nothing to you. He is the brother of the current prime minister of Israel. So there's like a lot of mythology behind Benjamin Netanyahu. And that comes from his brother being a hero in operation Entebbe. So the Israelis, they storm Entebbe airport and actually get the hostages out of there. Jonathan Netanyahu dies in the process. So that's why he's, again, and Benjamin can play into this a lot. Like, it's political dynamite if you're yeah. a prime minister. Like, my brother. brother. A hero. Yeah, exactly. And so where they take, they take the hostages to Kenya. And so basically, Idi Amin then responds to, to Kenya. And Idi Amin, he goes to Kenya and he's like, if you don't give the hostages back, I'm going to invade you. Stupid move on Idi Amin's part. This was one of the worst threats he could have made. If you remember back to the geography at the very start, Uganda is blocked from the sea by Kenya. So all its imports that are coming from the sea actually come through Kenya. Mm -hmm. So Kenya just sanctioned them and blockade them. Yeah, Jojo Kenyatta, the leader of of Kenya, is like, see, easy easy solution here. (laughs) Idi Amin... Then changes his tune and he's like, "Oh yeah, good. That that that's smart. That's that's, oh. that's good. Well played. Well played." That's what I would have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he praises. He's just heaps praise on Jojo Kenyatta for what he said was a smart move. And so this is where kind of the chaotic idiot, like, what's he trying to do here? That's where a lot of that perception comes from. So, idiom in he then starts toying with the idea of invading Tanzania. Now, why would he invade Tanzania? Well. The Ugandan economy economy is devastated by these sanctions and by the effective naval blockade. So he starts toying with the idea of invading Tanzania. One of the issues for Idi Amin is he is hearing word that Milton Obote is going to come back. And it's this big thing. Obote's not dead. He's He's not dead. Mm. He's still alive. (laughs) 
And it's kind of, you know, when in like Star Wars 9, when it's like somehow Palpatine survived, <laughs> <laughs> Obote is kicking around in Tanzania yeah. and he's plotting his revenge and he wants to go back and become the leader of Uganda again. So he's hearing about this and he knows Obote's in Tanzania. And so for these two reasons, he's like, let's strike Tanzania preemptively and let's actually invade them. At the start, the invasion's going pretty well. Now, Tanzania, what's their what's their dog in this fight apart from just being invaded? Well, they have heard Tanzania is a Christian country. They're hearing about all these Catholic people that are being killed under Idi Amin. There's a guy called Archbishop Luum, and he gets killed and executed by Idi Amin. And so their dog in the fight is now, yes, they're being invaded, but they're preparing for this invasion because of the way that the Christians are being treated in Uganda. And that's kind of seen almost as like a little bit of a holy war as well. So Obote leads forces from Tanzania. Amin is leading forces from, from Uganda. The issue for Idi Amin is that his forces are mercenaries. He's relying on Libyan soldiers. He's relying on Sudanese soldiers. Now, if you're a soldier that's a mercenary, are you willing to die to prevent Uganda from being invaded by Obote's Tanzanians? No way. You want your paycheck. And so a lot of the mercenaries actually just flee. So Idi Amin, it's, it's pretty ominous for him. Abote's coming back, and that's pretty clear. So Idi Amin, he flees to Gaddafi's Libya, and then he ends up in Saudi Arabia. Mm. He dies in 2003. Yeah. So you you cross paths with him for a couple of years. Well, I, yeah, you yeah. and me, we both cross paths. He died in King Faisal Hospital. No. To come from... <laughs> It wouldn't be a podcast. <laughs> it wouldn't be a podcast episode if we didn't bring enough Faisal. Of natural causes. Yes, yes. He was. I don't know how old he was. I think he was in his seventies. Yeah. Um, seventies or eighties. And so yeah, he he basically lived in refuge for the last twenty years of his life. Didn't like wasn't brought before a war tribunal or international crimes tribunal or anything like that. And he was protected by the Saudi Arabian government. So, when thinking about the le- the legacy of Idi Amin, he is still largely revered by a lot of Africa. I haven't seen people who can point to policy achievements. So it's not as though his defenders can point to any particular, like with Saddam Hussein, his supporters point towards his education yeah, and towards his healthcare, free healthcare in the 70s. Gaddafi, same thing. Literacy rate, highest in Africa. For any minute, I can't find any particular policies that his supporters point towards. It's more the concept of a black guy standing up to white Europe. Okay. None of the, the nationalizing really helped anything. Well, that was under a bote. Oh, and so Amin reversed a lot of it uh, when he was in, in power. And so, again, nationalization only works if you share the profits amongst yeah. the people. If you nationalize stuff and then you put that money into, into infrastructure for them, but if you nationalize and then pocket it into the, into the army and into the military, then it's gutting your country yourselves rather than letting Britain gut your country. Mm. Oh, I do have one question. His sons were were their names like of Scottish, Ooh. origin. It's in the movie we've got Mackenzie Campbell. As far as I know, I think that's a dramatic inclusion. Myth busted. I don't think because he had he had a lot of Islamic Islamic sounding names like like Jafar and Moses because like Islam traces back to the Abrahamic beginnings. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't think so. I could be wrong. I'm happy if someone was to prove me wrong, but the ones that I know of all have Islamic names. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> so, last king of Scotland, I think final verdict is, I think it's pretty good. 
I think historically it captures the the drama of yeah. a lot of Amin's regime. Is it the most accurate? Well, no. I, and I don't ever hold that against a movie for not being 100% factually accurate. But if you want a sense of what Idi Amin's regime was like, at least from the West point of view and from Britain's point of view, then yeah, check it out. And in defense of The Last King of Scotland, there's large parts of the movie where you actually are kind of thinking Idi Amin is okay. And it keeps no you guessing. Doubt. It doesn't want to decide. It doesn't want to dictate your opinion of Amin for you. Yeah. So I'm largely, like for me, I'm largely supportive of people watching that movie. And I think they did a really good job. Forrest Whitaker played Idi Amin pretty well. If you listen, if you watch Idi Amin in his like tapes and that sort of stuff, he, the, I think the African accent is a little bit exaggerated okay. by Forrest Whitaker. I said that having done like five impersonations that I'm sure <laughs> didn't sound anything like Idi Amin. James McAvoy, fictional character, but fantastic performance. And yeah, like it's the other thing that's true as well is that his, yeah, he he did brutally murder one of his wives. Uh, I think another one mysteriously died in a car crash oh. with a huge asterisk on it. So, yeah, the the family stuff is also largely true. She, when when Kay died, I don't. It wasn't for sleeping with like a Scottish guy or anything like yeah, that. But w- was she actually like kind of dismembered? Yeah, and so oh, yeah, and what Idi Min did is he he, oh, so sad. he showed the body to her sons, yeah, and wow. was like, "Your your mother's a, a very bad woman." Um, yeah, she was. She was. She was not a good woman. That's brutal. So yeah, he, of course he ruled with brutality, yeah. and so like with the Saddam episode, I think both can be true. When you look yeah. at like Britain wanted him gone for for selfish purposes. As time went on, was it clear that there were huge human rights issues in Uganda? Yes. Is Uganda better now for having him in gone? Yes. I think yeah. that one I can pretty confidently say. Oh, he killed so many people. And like it wasn't like Saddam Hussein was a brutal leader, mm. but he knew he had he had a he had a degree of competence and. He had done his, yes, he was a, was a military guy, but he had done his background in politics and in kind of actually governance before coming to power. So Saddam Hussein actually led with a degree of competence. And I, this is perhaps a controversial opinion. I think Saddam was both brutal, protective of his own power and wanted to see a strong Iraq and the people prosper at the same time. I don't think yeah. those are mutually exclusive okay. things either. Idiom in... I don't know how much he really wanted the prospering of Africa. I think mean, he probably had a vague idea of the the white Brit being conquered by the black African, what yeah, that looks like. maybe sure how to the best achieve it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't think he had any real sense of policy. So Obote came back. Um, he was gone again in 86. So they got rid of, they got rid of Obote. Mm. And Uganda, it's it's not been thriving ever since, but it's a much better place to, than what it was back in the 70s. I think we've done a good job at uh, <laughs> analysing the movie and history at the same time. And, yeah, maybe we could do more movies, more podcasts. If you have any movies. suggestions, send them through. Goal? <laughs> Final score. <laughs> 0506 Newcastle team just, you know, finding the historical accuracies and inaccuracies. <laughs> yeah. Did a Mexican player really get in the squad for Liverpool game? Mm. We'll see everyone next week.